Greetings and salutations. Welcome to Life and Books and Everything. I'm Kevin Young. Glad to have you with us. I am recording this in Sun Valley, California, sunny SoCal, with one who has seen his share of hmm, lack of sunny days, being from the great country of Scotland. Sinclair Ferguson, we are here at the Puritan Conference. Sinclair, thank you for taking time to record this. Well, thank you for having me, Kevin. And I just want to thank Crossway, our sponsor, and highlight the book by Dane Ortland, In the Lord I Take Refuge, 150 Daily Devotions from the Psalms, or the, the Psalms. Many, many Christians for thousands of years have found comfort in the Psalms, and to make it a part of your daily practice would be very beneficial, and Dane provides a great walkthrough using the full text of the ESV and providing devotional insights and showing how the Psalms comfort and console us. So check that out. Sinclair, Dr. Ferguson, thank that's you. A, that's a splendid book, incidentally. Yes, it is. Did you do a... Uh, I think I did you watch it, but yes. that's not why it's just... Well, good. I, I, have a second, I have a second ad coming up later in the program where you also did, you okay. did an introduction. So this is sponsored by Sinclair reading these books and blurbing them. Thank you. Uh, you are kind enough to take time to do this and to do something that I know, this is not faint humility, but genuinely, you, uh, if you got on your schedule, talk to someone about myself for an hour. That's not your favorite thing to do. Is that because you're especially sanctified or because you're especially Scottish? Um, it's because I'm especially me. <laughs> you know, I was brought up not to talk about myself. Um, and it's, it's really instinctive. Um, it's also part, I think, of our family culture. Um, it's also part of a sense that I'm actually a relatively boring individual with a quite interesting inward life. That's, that's how I think about myself. So the idea that inquisitive Americans would want to know more about me uh, than the American government knows about me, which I think <laughs> is almost everything, yeah. is a kind of peculiar idea. Well, we're, we, we are inquisitive Americans. You, you've spent uh, a good part of your life here in America. Now you're in Scotland, but you go back and forth. So you understand this culture very well. I wonder, even though you've been in the States, you've worked here, you've been a professor here, you've been a pastor here, are there still things that you just scratch your head and you think, I am a stranger in a strange land when you're in America? Do you know, I, you know because I've been in the States so much and worked here so much, the times when I felt that most would be the first two days returning from Scotland when I noticed I had a different accent from everybody else. Yeah. But I think although I was always conscious in the States, I'm not really from around here, which sometimes enables you to get away with things that other people don't get away with. Um, it, it, it is a country that I think personally has been very beneficial to me, um, even just in terms of my own spiritual growth, not just because of the, the Christian context I've been in, but because you can't, you just don't get the same private space here as you do right. in the United Kingdom. And even in the United Kingdom, constitutionally, I'm extremely shy. Um, 
But Even you, for a Brit? Yes. My father was kind of, for a variety of reasons, kind of paralytically okay. shy. Um, and I think I probably drank in that model so that sometimes I think, where did that come from? And then I remember my dad. Um, and, I, and I kind of, at times, I realized there's a kind of regression flashback. Um, but you can't function here, at least in the areas I've functioned, um, and live a life of complete shyness. And I think that has really been a, a, a real blessing to me in the sense that it's, it's increased and enhanced my level of um, engagement really, with people and my comfort level, my natural comfort level. And I think to my spiritual comfort level, being with people. So actually, I mean, quite apart from the fact that the parking spaces in the United States are actually large enough to park a car in. Um, <laughs> That's right. You know, I, I, I really do feel indebted to the new world for the blessings it's been to me. And actually, one of the things I've always tried to do is to watch the Senate judiciary hearings for uh, Supreme Court nominees yeah. because... I think I found there um, my own interest in the question, what does it really mean to be American? Whether you understand it as an American or not. And that, I found that fascinating and very informative. Do you have a working answer to that question? Well, I mean, I have a, I have a kind of working answer that's at least helping me to understand the Constitution. Um, but the other thing that I guess I have noticed, because I've lived in three different parts of the United States, is that you're really, depending on where you live, you're living in a different country. Yeah, right. I know there's a tremendous cross-fertilization of nationalities, but there are also these distinctive... Philadelphia is very different from Columbia, yeah. South Carolina. Yeah, and Dallas, where we were oh, for three years also. Uh, well, if, if you're in Dallas, they'll tell you they still are their own country. Yeah. So, and the interesting thing, it was only when we went to South Carolina, that was actually the first place I ever heard anyone. I read it, but I never heard anyone speak about states' rights. Right. So, uh, it's just all very, it's all very interesting to be an outsider looking in, but also at the same time become to a certain extent, part of the culture. Yeah. And looking back now, I was glad, I think even looking forward, I was glad that when I came, it was, first of all, to teach in seminary, which is a kind of isolated, right. not quite monastic, although the seminary I taught at actually had the word monastery in it. <laughs> Westminster was originally West Monastery um, in, in London. Um, and I did often think then, I think it's a mercy that I didn't come from Scotland to be the pastor of a congregation because being, being thrown into trying to negotiate the peculiarities and distinctive differences of one culture to another, I, I think I would have found that probably would more have paralyzed right. and liberated me so that by the time I became a pastor in Colombia, I mean, it wasn't that I knew everything, but I had, I think I'd probably developed a little emotional sensitivity to America. Right, right. I, I've been at conferences before with you and, and Alistair. Alistair Begg has been a friend of yours for a long time. And if I'm not mistaken, 
I've caught you two glancing at each other every once in a while, as if to communicate by your your eyes. This is a different sort of we. This would not fly in Scotland. The, in the the length of the introductions, the exuberance. What is it that still sometimes hits you that makes you feel like I don't even think the Americans know how American they are. Yeah, I mean, I'm you know I'm, I'm still struck by the fact that. People applaud before you've actually said anything. <laughs> right, right. Um, Wait until I say something. Um, I think, too, you know, there is a... I think among American Christians, there is a kind of view of Scottish Christianity. Um, there, are, there's, there are ways of doing things. So, for example, I remember one instance, years ago, Alistair and I were both at an event. I need to shroud it in anonymity here. But the event ended with a declaration. So there was this declaration that they'd prepared. And uh, <laughs> it stunned me that we were all now invited to, to, to get up and sign it. Oh, so a declaration of independence? Well, well two things first. Yes. So I'm, that was the first thing that struck me. That, yes, this is a country that was founded on a declaration. And I just had the sense as I as I watched things happening that there was almost like a sense of you hadn't really done something unless there was a declaration. So right. evangelical yes. groups make all kinds they of they do manifest declarations. declarations also. Yeah. And so Alistair and I are stand, standing together, and I don't know, I was fussed out. He said, Sinter, forget about yourself. Just silently. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think Alistair was more sensitive to the, the, the American lifestyle. Now, of course, Alistair's wife, Sue, is an American. Uh -huh. um, and I think that, um, you know, that flavors your ability to actually belong to the, the world. But, um, you know, I think, you know, as we, we, we uh, both came from the same city, and one of the things was, you know, you can take the boy out of Glasgow, but you can't take Glasgow out of the boy. Are you Glasgow proper? Not a, yeah. not a surrounding, no, not Paisley or something? No, I was real East End, ah. Glasgow, the wrong side of town. Was Alistair in the same part of town? Uh, Alistair, no, Alistair. <laughs> Alistair sounds more refined than I do. Yeah. You know. um, so speaking of Alistair, look, uh, um, I think we were waiting... We were at a restaurant waiting for him to come, and I was standing talking to Sue, and she said, you know, we can't go anywhere without people recognizing him. And I thought, that's not so surprising, but she said, because of his gravelly voice. Uh -huh. And I never crossed my mind no. that he had that. There is an element in certain Scottish accents that have that, and, and uh, I guess that's how friendship works. You just don't notice things that other people notice. You, you, you mentioned about the way American Christians can view Scotland and Scottish Christianity, perhaps, and particularly, though not exclusively, Presbyterians. And we know, if you follow the news, you know that Scotland is very post-Christian, yes. and much more so than England. Yes. Certainly much more so than Northern Ireland. It's very post-Christian. It's good gospel work, and you're a part of some of it, but, but hard gospel work. And yet, Presbyterians in, in particular, we know all the, the glory days and the stories and the covenanters and the Grey Friars and the Solid League and Covenants and all the, the history and the, the Chalmers and walking out. 
Well, this is not a fair question historically, but do you, where do you locate, I think Ian Hamilton maybe wrote about this, but where do you locate where the gospel was lost? Maybe that's too strong. A, is it the 18th century in Scotland with the, when the moderates are in the ascendancy, or is it really later after the free church and it's the beginning of the 20th century? Where do you historically look and say, that's where Scotland started to lose its Christian heritage? Well, A, I'm not a church historian. Um, B, I do have a very considerable interest in Scottish church history. And C, I think I may hold an idiosyncratic view of this. Oh, bring it So what I'm about to say should not be treated as though, it, you know, it came... As it were. Um, and in fact, we're not sitting in a cathedral in any case. Um, my own conviction is that the gospel never really rooted out what one might think of as the natural theology of medieval Roman Catholicism, but that it, it had a tremendous impact on the country. And the power of its impact was the way in which it was able to seize the center of a country's life. And so there was a kind of mastery, almost dominance, of the, ma the major institutions. But even from the beginning of the Scottish Reformation, you know, John Knox had supporters who left him pretty quickly. And Knox's, part of Knox's vision was that the wealth of the church in Scotland in the 16th century, which was Roman Catholic wealth, which was greater wealth than the wealth of the monarchy, would stay in the church, would stay in the Reformed Church. But in actual fact, only a fraction of it stayed. And it was members of the nobility who, whatever support they gave at the beginning, saw that there was also benefit for them. So Knox's radical commitment to the gospel and to the advance of the gospel and building of the church was not something that was universally shared by his earlier supporters. So I, I, I believe there was a dominance of, of the gospel um, uh, right at the heart of the country's life, influencing the institutions, not least influencing education. Knox this great vision for basically the, the education of anyone to their capacity for education to be supported. And that, has, that went through right into my childhood in many ways. Um, so there have been enormous benefits. But I think the default of Scottish Christianity has always been a form of, well, theologically semi-Pelagianism, if not full-blown Pelagianism. Um, so that, for example, when I was growing up as a youngster and was converted, it was certainly within the, within the broad national church regarded convulsion as a form of arrogance that a young person would be sure they were going to heaven. Because how... Wait, talk to Joel Beakey about that. Yeah, well, well yeah. and it's, it, it's it, you know, there are similar influences right. that have crept into Christianity where how can you have done enough Right. Or how can grace have done enough for you to be sure? And 
I think people didn't realise that's actually the old Roman Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we believe in grace, but it, you know, it's the grace that works in us to make us justifiable. And if we ever get there, so you know, if you ask people some of these old kind of evangelistic questions, do you know you're going to heaven? They would say, "Well, I hope I've done enough." And one of the things I don't know—I mean, I don't know enough about American uh, church history to know whether it's absolutely true—but my impression is that one of the differences between Scottish Christianity and American Christianity is that much of American Christianity, much of American Christianity's default is evangelical in tone and language. Yeah. I mean, here, people still heartily sing Amazing Grace, which is like, you know, full of gospel truth. I'm saving a wretch like me, and don't blink an eye. Whereas default, I believe default Christi- Christianity, in inverted commas, in Scotland, has, has been at best semi-Pelagian. So that there have been, the way I would put it is, there have been seasons of gospel renewal, awakening, advance, strength within that context, rather than there has been gospel everywhere and there has been decline from that. So in a sense, therefore, it it, it seems another I think another big difference is, uh, as you you know this better than I do, Kevin, there really was a Scottish Enlightenment. so we know about the European Enlightenment, but there was a distinctive Scottish Enlightenment. And it was mainly ministers from the Kirk. Uh, yes. Who were a part of it, who were friends with Hume and Adam Smith and yeah. irreligious, or at least unreligious yeah. yes. people. It was all in there. And it, and it gave it a certain conservative, I don't mean that in a theological sense, it wasn't radical like France yeah. at all. Yeah. It was very much among... Middle yes. class, upper middle yes. class, uh, established. It was in the universities. Yes. It was in the Kirk. But you know, I'm just leaning on things that I've read and studied because I did my work on Witherspoon. But you go back. I mean, you know, 1710, 1720s, the John Simpson affair. Who's uh, you know, he's not heretical. He's very soft on core doctrines, mm-hmm. and that is one of the precipitating factors for the Erskines to leave. I mean, that's sort of theological laxity won't really take root in America. I mean, I guess you could say there's some of it coming up in the Presbyterian world in the Second Great Awakening, but to a large degree, it's not until the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, we're standing here with some pictures of Machen and, yeah. and others. So, I mean, it's almost a 200-year head start yeah. on some of these yeah. very latitudinarian which surprises people if you just want to think of the glory of Scotland and the nostalgia. If only I could have been a Presbyterian pastor with one of these beautiful stone carts somewhere out with the heather on the hills. But it, so I, I don't. I'm not an expert either. We could ask some of our our brethren here, but certainly some of what you're saying rings true. Yeah, so all of that moderate religion, in a sense, had already had a seedbed. Um, and it survived within reformed Christianity. Because I think, and I think this has almost been a pattern right through the years, if you if what you believe is 
kind of um, a certain decency of lifestyle is what Christianity at the end of the day really means, then you relegate it's the distinctive truths of Christianity to a secondary position. Um, and you therefore be, and ministers therefore began to do this. I'm not going to doubt them, but they're not really that's functioning. Right. That's right. They didn't they didn't function. We don't we don't want to get rid of the Westminster Confession. It's not really functioning in our lives as a guiding dog. Yeah, you can't you can't nab anybody for denying it yeah. and I'm no longer a Calvinist. But it doesn't operate, it doesn't show up, it doesn't sing, it doesn't come through their sermons. One of the things I did is I compared an action sermon. So you know that language, yes. that's what they called when they had communion mm-hmm. with the action sermon. Uh, on almost the same text from Hugh Blair, who oh. was one of the great mm-hmm. uh, moderate ministers, his sermons were bestsellers, and then John Witherspoon. And it's remarkable not that Hugh Blair's sermon on the cross at the action sermon said anything necessarily wrong. It just didn't say anything. It talked about the example. It talked about Christ's love. It used some of the, the traditional language. Yes. But there yeah. was no leaning into the glory of the cross and the lostness of mankind. And that's already the, the middle of the 18th century. Yeah. So where did you, we talked about where you served in America, where did you serve in Scotland? Well, when, so my story is I was um, I was ordained when I was 23 as the assistant minister in a large city centre evangelical church in the mainline denomination called St. George's Tron. You started and, at the Tron. And that was where I started. Yeah. And in fact, that was where I was converted. I was, I was never a member of the church. Uh, Actually, I was never a member of the church because in Scotland, in Scottish Presbyterianism, um, I think latterly they changed this, but ministers were members of the presbytery, not members of the congregation. Is that way in the PCS? So, so I was there for three years. Um, with a, my, my boss was a very famous Keswick preacher. Uh, Church was, I mean, in the summer times, kind of standing room only. And is this before Keswick? Now, so Keswick for Americans, it has a W. Yeah. It was like Keswick. 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 So, famous for the higher life, but now yeah. it's, you know, no. just so conference. I would, what was this I would say since the 1960s, I mean, some people would see John Stott's um, expositions of Romans 5 through 8 that were once published under the title Men Made New as a kind of marker in the sand that the old Keswick message of higher life had gone. And I, n- I never heard my, my boss preach that old Keswick message. He did have a very strong emphasis on conversion and consecration. And consecration was a big Keswick theme, uh-huh. but it wasn't consecration in the old sense of sanctification by, by an act of faith. Right. Um, by complete submission. Yeah, and um, I mean, I look back, I look back and think, you know, I, I was naive as young men are, and all the rest of it. And I'm very shy. And he was a very big public figure, but he also was, he was also, he had a shyness too about him. And so I never said to him, "How do you do this?" 
And he never said to me, Sinclair, let me help you do this. And in, in retrospect now, I think, if, I, if I'd asked him how he did some things, he would say, you'll not be able to do these things for another 25 years. You're 23. Um, and in a strange way, I think, um, my years with him have benefited me in retrospect more than I, I was conscious at the time. So then, by the time I was 25, 26... And what does Tron oh, mean? Yeah. Because there's this old sci-fi, like, Star Trek kind of thing, uh, Tron. Yes, so Americans think Tron of. Is, a, is a weight, W-E-I-G-H-T. So um, it was used for um, uh, weighing things for taxation purposes. So in the old days, when these old cities had different gates... There was, and there's still an area of Glasgow called the Tron Gate. And I, I haven't really researched the history of the Tron Gate, but I presume it was the place where things were measured for taxation. Yeah. There was a taxation issue. And there were two churches. There was the Tron Church, um, and um, there was another church called uh, St. George's Church, and they united together um, quite a long time ago. Hence, they became St. John's Tron, affectionately known as the Tron. But when I was assistant minister, and I think even when I actually later on became the right. Americans would call the senior minister, I, I think there were still some people who had actually belonged to the St. George's Church. So if you were one of the ministers, you'd never refer to it as That's the, the Tron. The Tron. So you served there, and later yeah. you came back. Where did you go so after that? Then, um, I was, I kind of felt, um, you know, one of the older ministers said to me one day, he said, you know, you're the new boy on the block and they are out there saying, let's work him over. <laughs> and I really felt we needed to get away to, I felt I needed to put down more roots spiritually, um, theologically and so <laughs> paradoxically we went as far away as it is actually possible to go and still be in Scotland so we went to the most northerly of the Shetland Islands uh -huh. now and that island is called Unst, U-N-S-T not to be confused with Uist so there are islands on the west coast of Scotland um, and then there are two sets of islands off the north coast the Orkney Islands which you can sail to from the north coast in, I don't know, an hour and a half maybe, the Shetland Islands, where you need to sail for the rest of the day. It's a day's journey to get there. And, and that's still the same today. And it's you, only same. You, can, you can actually fly. Yeah. Um, and then you reach the mainland of Shetland. And if you wanted to get where we lived, you then got a ferry onto another island, went through that island, got a ferry from there onto our island. This is very remote. So it was, it was what the Romans called Ultima Thule, which we would always translate as the back of beyond. And uh, I presume this is where the Shetland ponies come from? Exactly. And it is, um, <laughs> the, the, the reason they're so small is because it's so windy. <laughs> Um, and do they get any sun? Yeah, in the summertime, 
Well, yeah, the sun never goes down and for a couple really, of months. It really doesn't. So uh, you can read out outside. Uh, you could read inside if your windows are large enough. On Anst, we had a 24-hour golf tournament in the middle of the summer. Not that you played for 24 hours, but you could start any hour of yeah. the day. You know, you could go to the golf course at 11.30 at night. And then what was it like in the winter? So It was very dark. dark. And so there were only a few hours of daylight. And did, I mean, did people... Now we have all these terms and people get lamps and things, seasonal affective disorder, but it really must have taken a toll on people. Yeah. I mean, or they're Scottish and they're just used to it. I mean, it, they... Drink some iron brew and, and just get on So life. the islands originally belonged to Norway. They were kind of equidistant just about from Scotland and Norway. And so the people really did not think of themselves as Scottish. If you asked them if they were Scottish, they probably would have said, no, I'm a Shetlander. Oh, yeah, right. Um, and there were very beautiful parts. Our island was actually a very lovely island. The next island, which was called Yale, was, I think, had maybe the highest incidence of clinical depression of, you know, any block of the population. Um, they were, I mean, just completely memorable people. I, I've never been back since I left, and um, although we have contact, but you know, I've often thought if I step foot on that island again, I'll burst into tears. And the people would have no idea how memorable they were to me, how much they actually meant to me, mm. um, and what being there meant, because one of the first things I did, well, they did, I think they didn't really know what an evangelical was, but somehow or another they heard I was yeah. this young evangelical. But you were at a church of Scotland. Yeah. yeah. So the, apparently the two rumors that preceded me were, one, that I must be a converted pop star. <laughs> oh. oh, you get that all the time. Yes. <laughs> I mean... I mean, it's so obvious. Isn't yeah. it? And the other one was that I must be a close personal friend of Billy Graham. So they thought of it. You so, some so that was there. You know, it was like a picture. Um, so one of the first things I did was I actually bought, <laughs> bought and sold Bibles at a discount because the, you know the idea that of expanding the scriptures was it um, and. You know, the idea of preaching a 40-minute sermon was, you know, that would have been sheer foolishness. And I think Dorothy, my wife, would say, that's where, not that, I'm, not that I've ever mastered the art, but that's where um, I needed to learn how to be simple mm -hmm. and yet not simplistic. You know, that idea that, that congregations, people in congregations all come at different levels and layers, and that it is one of the challenges, but also one of the thrills of preaching, to be able to, to feed those who have little understanding, and at the same time satisfy right. those who have greater understanding. I mean, actually, it's, it's one of the things that was said about Perkins' ministry in Cambridge, that, you know, his ministry did this. And I think that was, that was an enormous help to me. But I, I, mean, I remember one woman, actually, in the congregation who I 
I, I watched her at the beginning of my ministry, and she was scarcely on the seat when the sermon began, not with anticipation, but with fear. And what was she afraid of? It, she was afraid this young man is an evangelical, and at some point, he's going to cast me into hell. Oh. And she just looked kind of like terrified. <laughs> and like, you know, I was a complete outsider, what they called a sooth mover. Um, and so they weren't going to open up to a 26-year-old. Um, and so you had to kind of look for little signs of whether the gospel was beginning to right. penetrate. And in this woman, the sign was that eventually she was actually sitting there right back yeah. and actually hearing what was being said. So did you go from there back to the trunk to be the no, senior minister? No, I mean, this is, um, this is a kind of hidden part of my life. I actually went for a short while to work for the Bank of Truth. Oh. So um, in, in, Edinburgh. in Edinburgh for a, a year and a half or a couple of years. Um, and... In retrospect, that was a very strange decision. I mean, I look back and I think that was just one of the strangest decisions. Ian Murray. Uh, yeah. Yes, you did know. Yeah. And yet now in retrospect, I see, I saw one thing immediately, Kevin, and then there was another thing I saw only in retrospect. The thing I saw in retrospect was, I, by osmosis, I learned some skills. Um, um, that obviously I needed to more and more develop, but they had to do with books and writing, you know, and so on. The other thing was, we had been we had been back on the mainland just a few weeks when I, I, I had an elder brother at that time, and he said he called me and said, "St. Paul, doctor said, Dad's been six months to live." Mm. And my dad, um, short story about my dad was. When he was a young man, his younger brother had died, and his mother, I didn't know this until after he died, his mother threw him out of the house. And I think damaged him yeah. very badly psychologically. And so he, he kind of went through life with almost slightly angular coping mechanisms that surrounded him. Um, you know, if he was gracious to somebody, he would be over almost awkwardly kind. I mean, Dorothy says she she did not understand me until she stepped into my home. And she said it all became me. Because you're like that? Or because, that because, because I was just I think I was just strange. I mean, I was I, mean, I was just desperately in love with her, but I was also probably strange. However, in these last six months, all those coping mechanisms, we were, we were living you know, 25 miles away from them instead of, yeah. you know, a country away from them. And all the coping mechanisms my dad had, well, they were irrelevant now. They, he saw nobody but my mum, my brother, myself, Dorothy, and we had two. And he knew the Lord. Two before, yeah. And then I discovered, you know, when I, I, had, I had been converted when my parents didn't go to church. And I'd always kind of, Fuss the Lord about you know, why are you not doing more like mom and dad? And then they started coming to church. But it was in those last six months that he, he kind of opened his heart. I still remember vividly him uh, quoting a hymn to me I never heard in my life before. Um, and so I look back now and I see, you know, 
it was a real indication to me that sometimes you make decisions and you ex you unwisely extrapolate from the decision to where the decisions were to lead. And I could have had no idea where. And then about 18 months after that, my, my brother died. And so we were there for my mum. Mm -hmm. um, so I, you know, I look back on that as, you know, what possessed me to make those decisions looking forward, but then looking back on the see. You know, the Lord's hand is just on our lives. And, and I mean, you know, I could never be thankful for, for what that meant to me. Uh, I have so many more questions. And if you have 15 more minutes, we'll, we'll get a few more. I do want to mention uh, a couple of books. One is a book, Theology for Ministry, How Doctrine Affects Pastoral Life and Practice, which is something of an homage to Sinclair Ferguson, edited by William Edwards. John Ferguson, is he related to you? He is our third son. All right. Yeah. And then Chad Van Dixhorn. Yes. Uh, I wrote a blurb for it. I didn't do a chapter in it, but do encourage you to pick that up from PNR. And then here's one that you did an introduction for, The Epistle to the Romans by John Murray, Westminster Seminary Press. is just reissuing that book. One of the best commentaries on any book of the Bible. So uh, do pick up the Epistle of the Romans, Westminster Seminary Press, doing this new edition. Sinclair has an introduction. Did you meet John Murray? I, Kevin, I did. And what was he like? He, also very shy? Um, I don't know whether he was shy, but he was <laughs> He was awesome. <laughs> um, so he this, was also um, interesting? He was... Very interesting, and I owe a tremendous debt to him. So, I mean, um, you know, I mean, maybe people who are listening may not know that I taught at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. Yeah, what were those years? And that was 1983 through, well, often, 1983 through 98, full-time, nothing yeah. but, and then thereafter, pretty frequently. John Murray died in the seventies. So John Murray, um, I was I was on the in in Scotland, InterVarsity was very much a student-led organisation, and I was sitting on the committee that was deciding the teaching series for the next year. I was I was at the end of my first year at university, and the man, the student who was the president of our InterVarsity group said in this meeting, he said, Professor John Murray is retiring from Westminster Seminary and we'll be able to have him speak at the Christian Union. And I have a very vivid memory of sitting there thinking, who on earth is Professor John, John Murray and where in all the world is Westminster Seminary? Oh, yeah. And so he came and for some reason... Our meeting was in the graduation hall of the university, which was a beautiful wood-panelled right. room. And my the metaphor I used for the experience I had listening to him was, it was as though he came up to me where I was sitting and said, son, come with me, took me to the back wall and said, you, you see these wood panels? You didn't notice one of them actually has a handle on it and it's a door. And I'm going to take you through that door and show you things that lie behind. 
um, it's like a wardrobe. It was almost like, like a Narnia experience. Um, and it's very difficult to describe the impact of that, but it was the grandeur of the theology, the passion with which it was presented. And I, you know, I didn't know that where. Was he a very passionate yeah, presenter? Was. Yeah. Yeah. He had that old Scottish Presbyterian ability that I don't to put tremendous emphasis on particular words. Um, tremendous emphasis. I, can, I just, it isn't, I don't know, I'm not wired to be able to do it. And I think if I tried to do it, I would just be shouting. Did he have a different Scottish accent? He had, well, he was from uh, the, the north of Scotland, yeah. north of Inverness. Right. Um, he'd been brought up in a, in a particular kind of Presbyterian tradition. Um, his story, in a way, um, we, were, we were listening to Joel Beaky yesterday, and he was talking about his mother and father at one time. And it reminded me very much of Professor Murray, who, who said that he owed so much to his father, Alexander Murray, who was a, you know, had a very modest um, occupation, uh, but was a, a man of great godliness. Um, and um, there is a strand of that in Scottish Presbyterianism, uh, which is very, I mean, it's just marvelous to see. Was he married yet? He no, married very late uh, he, had, he was married by that time. Okay. So... Late, I mean, he was yeah. uh, 67, so he 68 when he married. And then married. Yeah. Um, a woman quite a bit younger. Yes. They met when, when they, she was a student. Yes. She was a... Do she not was try a, this at home. She was a professor of... Um, yeah, by that time, she got a PhD you know, and was a professor. Yeah, and I, think, I don't know whether she audited. I think she actually took courses at the seminar. Yeah, that's how um, they first became acquainted. I've had all kinds of interesting insider Westminster stories about it. But um, so, so then I would hear him um, kind of basically on an annual basis. Um, a very vivid memory scene, very unusual gesticulations. Um, he... Uh, my, the highest moment of my theological life was at a meeting of theological students. I asked him a question. I dared to ask him a question. He didn't really like questions, I don't think. No, so no, that's right. That was not, um, he was not looking for a Socratic method. I, I've never forgotten him say, that's a very difficult question. <laughs> you know, I'm like full of, you know, wow, you know, I'm really somebody. I've asked Professor Murray a question he says is difficult. But I, to, to especially that first address and to reading him, you know, I, it is, you know, various people you read shape you in different ways. But do you have a, a do you have a, a person like Piper would say Jonathan Edwards has been his companion and dead mentor? Do you have a particular person? Is it John Owen? Well, I would say um, I think that the theologian who has shaped the way I think most is actually Calvin. Yeah, that's a good answer. The, the, the theologian who has shaped the way I think about ministry is probably John Owen, who for all his, you know, apparent academic greatness. There's a tremendous amount of material in Owen um, covering issues of personal Christian living, but also of ministry. Um, 
So, you know, I don't know quite, I mean, I sense I know a little of what it might be like to have been a member of this congregation, as it were. But he is, of the Puritans, he has been the biggest influence. Uh, I remember some lectures, maybe were these even given at RTS uh, many years ago now? Uh, you can find them, three lectures. So you're talking about pastoral ministry. Remember at one point you were talking about being a professor, which you've been, and being a pastor. And you've done both, and you they've overlapped, and I'm a pastor, and I also teach at, at RTS. I'm very happy to do that. But you said something, paraphrasing, like... Men, don't be, don't be quick to to think that the professorship is is where it is at, or that would be the pinnacle. Yeah. I think rightly in our Presbyterian and in other traditions as well, but we a lot of our heroes are those men who Warfield, Hodge, uh, Bannerman. I mean, people who had pastoral hearts and sense, but their main thing was to be a professor. And I certainly think both are very good, admirable qualities. I would not tell a man that you, you couldn't do one or the other, or hopefully you can't try to do both. But I do find sometimes among pastors, a sort of wistful longing, those would be greener pastures. And then often when I meet not all, but some of the professors, it's to be a pastor would really be back in the game. That would yeah. What, what did you mean, if I've paraphrased you somewhat accurately, not to be quick to think that that would be the pinnacle of, yes, say, usefulness? Yes, yeah. I, I, you know, my observations about, about seminary life in America is that for some students, not necessarily for all, but for some students, even to many students, what they encounter in seminary is the finest handling of Scripture they've ever encountered by men of great ability. Yeah. Um, but it's handling of Scripture in a certain environment. And therefore they see that as almost like a higher form of, of biblical ministry. Um, and I think that is a bit of a problem, which I think can be solved by better biblical ministry. Mm. Um, so I think that is one problem. The second thing, you know, because I have had people, even before they've come to seminary, come, you know, and kind of, they want to interview the faculty, and they'll come into your office and say what they want to be as a, a seminary professor. And instinctively, I feel, would well, you want me to leave the room and kind of this seat? Because I think it is, to me, it's one of the strangest things in the world to want to be a seminary professor in order to train men for something that you've never actually done. Um, and that can worry me. Now, that said, I believe that if a seminary has a decent size of uh, number of faculty, then there should be room for eggheads, right. because there are elements of seminary education today that require a certain kind of scholarship that only eggheads the patients to engage in. And then you need that to go write that monograph that's going to show why yes. this new thing is, is wrong, and that will trickle down, yeah. and we'll thank you for doing the yoga's yeah. work. Because, you know, ultimately a seminary's function is, it's really multifunctional. 
um, it's it's not only teaching the students, but it ought to be serving the church at large. And um, there are there are lots of things go on where it's just important that you have people who are real um, right. eggheads. And uh, I had a had a lovely conversation with one man who I regard as exceptionally bright, uh, very very bright, um, demonstrably bright um, man, and. He he was actually in the room when I was when I first met the Westminster faculty and we had, we had a meal a couple of years ago. And I was very touched by the fact he said, I remember when we first met you that you seemed to know what you were for. And I thought, yeah, and I think in God's grace I didn't know what I was for. As opposed to just knowing what you were As against? Is that what you're No, just like what, you know, or just kind of what you were about. Right. What is my life doing. for? Yeah. You know, where do I fit in? And he, I mean, he is really, I mean, he is the most gracious, lovely man. And what was that answer from you? What did you know? You well, I think, I mean, I can almost hardly remember, but if what I might have said, but I've always thought that I belong somewhere between the church and the academy. That's what I, that I want to uh, straddle both for a variety of reasons. That I think I can do the academics, but that's not the biggest thing for me. The biggest thing for me is um, how can I take the privileges I've had and employ that in the ministry that I feel fundamentally I've been called to in the literature. Whereas he, you know, he has written some things for the church, but a lot of his work is right. elevated, and he knows that's what he's for. Right. What, when people come up at, at a conference, people you've never met, you'll never meet again, and they want to shake your hand and they want to thank you for something, so I, I have this sometimes, and there's certain things they usually say to me. Sometimes it's, I listen to your preaching, your blog, your podcast. More often than not, it's, there's a few books. They'll just do something, Hole in Our Holiness. There's a few, what do people say when they want to come up and thank Sinclair Ferguson? What What is it that you've done? I know you don't want to talk about yourself, but by God's grace in their life, is it a message? Is it a book? What is it that they are inclined to come up and want to thank you for? I think it probably uh, differs between people who hear more than they read. You know, there are people who do that for whatever reason. They'll listen to sounds. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's just, it's just the way the world is now that you, you don't preach sermons for anyone except the people who are in your congregation, but they do get out right. because of, you know. Um, and so, I mean, it's almost got to the point where occasionally in the last few years, I've done something that's not been recorded and you're so used to oh, yeah. getting something stuck on you, you think, what's wrong with you people that you don't want to record what I'm saying? So for some, for people who are hearers, um, more than readers, it's, it's the sermon series, probably. Um, and then for readers, often it's just that people seem to have read a lot of my books. Um, and what, and which, then is be, there a book you think you're known for? No, I actually, I, the interesting thing, I think what I find, what I found recently, 
And I think it's been largely ministers who have told me this, that they've read the whole Christ. Yes, and the most yes. common thing that people have said to me is, I didn't realize I was such a legalist until I read it. Um, and that's been a very interesting uh, experience. Um, Your book on the Holy Spirit, I would think? Yeah, no, at least for ministers. Yeah, a lot of people, um, that, I mean, that book is now, I don't know, it's, it must be 35 years yeah. old, maybe. So I'm always surprised when people say that. But it is a kind of, I mean, it's kind of foundational book that, you know, probably um, in colleges and seminaries, students oh, read it. So, um, and then it kind of varies from book to book. Um, Have you, do you like writing? Is that something you I just love hate relationship, yeah. Kevin. I was educated to write, so I mean, although there's a certain fluency in what I'm saying here because you are a friend and you create that fluency in conversation, um, speech is more difficult for me than writing. Um, so I was talking to Steve Lawson last night about the fact he was talking about dictating. I could not dictate a letter to you. If you were my secretary and I said, Kevin, take a letter, I actually wouldn't be capable of being coherent. So there needs to be a something for me to have a flow of speech. And preaching is one of those somethings. There's the, there's the space here, there's the box to stand in, and you're right. a man. Yeah. Um, but writing comes, you know, I, we hardly ever spoke in school. We, we virtually never spoke at university. If anyone, if anyone in our classes at university put their hand up to ask a question, we knew they were visiting Americans. They didn't need to they, open their minds. They didn't want to, and to the, understand what the, you were feeling the about The look of apoplexy on the professor's face that one of these minions would dare to raise his hand. So, but I'm, a, I'm very slothful. <laughs> and, you know, I know people say to me, you couldn't have written all these books if you were slothful, which I say, those are the evidences of how slothful I am. Yeah. I'm trying to mortify the sloth. So there's an element of it that is, um, I hate hard work, but there's another element of it where, I think that this only dawned on me when um, People, talk, people that I would regard as very able preachers told me how difficult they found out to write. Oh, yeah. And I, it, that, it was, it was the kind of reflection of that that made me realize I actually don't find it difficult. And so, um, you know, I, I, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm a fallen man. I don't like hard work. But then when you mortify that, there is a, there's a flow and an ease, I think. So, all right, just one or two more. I have a very worldly question. Worldly. Have you ever seen The Simpsons, the American cartoon, <laughs> and Groundskeeper no. Willie? So, I have actually seen The Simpsons. Do you know that character who's very extremely Scottish? No, I don't. I um. <laughs> I'm sorry. If we had time later, we could pull up this character who's obnoxious, like just at all of Scottish. Yeah, grouse keep on willing. Oh wow, yeah. Okay, yeah, I don't he's know. Got, him, he's got he's got red he's hair. Scottish. Yes, and uh, he's he, a keep off the grass kind of person. Yes, but the, but they make him a diehard Presbyterian. <laughs> he has one clip where he talks about 
but you know, something someone mentioned Easter, and he says, I'm a Scottish right Presbyterian, we don't celebrate pagan holidays after the god Easter. Uh, he has another one where well, I told you it was very worldly, where Bart and Lisa they're the kids and they're fighting, and he looks out and he says, Us, your brothers and sisters always fight like Scotsmen and Englishmen, and Scots and Japanese. And Scots and other Scots. And he says, darn Scots, they ruin Scotland. It, it, is that a stereotype that that Scotsmen would own as being somewhat dour and cantankerous? Or is this just good American uh, humor? Well, I think I need to take us to the Fifth Amendment. Okay, <laughs> all right. You know, self there is a... Um, you know, there's certainly that is a kind of really characteristic caricature right. of of a conservative Presbyterian that he is really a keep off the glass kind of individual. Um, I, I don't know if you've time for this story, but this is about two men who are, who are I trust both with the Lord. One of them was a, a, a man who became a dear friend who amazingly sang a solo in the service I was converted in when he was a, a sergeant in the police force. And I conducted his funeral service a few years ago, uh, knighted by the Queen, and he had been the Queen's, uh, the Metropolitan Police Commissioner, which is the highest police officer in the land. And uh, he was an elder in the church. And the man who was the clerk of session, which in Scotland could be a lifetime of yeah, right. with power, uh -huh. you know. So they had the 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 goblets had been taken out, and my friend Sir David McNee's task among the elders was the the arm that um, that held extra wine if it was needed, yeah. and the. You know, Presbyterian communion can be very grand. The elders would come in. Right. Um, and then, <laughs> always struck me as slightly amusing in our congregation. Well, the two times, apart from to sing, the two times the congregation stood were when the money was being brought forward and the offering, <laughs> when the wine was being taken away at the end of yeah, the no. communion service. But, but, but David told me that one communion service, he brought back this beautiful arm with um, the, the remnants of the wine and he put it back on the on the communion table. And the session clerk, apparently, um, he was at that time the senior police officer in Scotland. <laughs> the session clerk tore him down afterwards for putting it in the wrong place. Oh, so <laughs> this is maybe your groundsman. Yeah, right. Really, although I had a very good relationship with him, I must say. So I said to David, I said, what did you say? And he was very discreet. He said, well, I responded in such a way that he would never say that again <laughs> to me. So there maybe is something. They exist. There. So uh, last bit. Uh, we're recording this. At the, the Queen died a few weeks ago. If you're at liberty to share, you you had the experience to preach for the Queen. How many years ago was that? And is that an indelible memory for you? Yes, it was. Um, it was about 19 years ago, Kevin. It was 2003. Up at Balmoral? It, it was at Balmoral. 
and uh, if you were invited to preach, I actually declined the invitation, first of all. You were at the Tron and, uh, No, it's actually, a, I was at Westminster and Alice. Oh, but they still, okay. And, um, and then they said to me, whoever, you know, I don't know who pulls the strings of these things, they said, you would be doing us a great favor if you came. And I kind of interpreted that, that I thought there had probably been some rumbles in the press that the Queen never heard evangelicals preach. Um, and so I, I said, I would go. And if you were invited to preach, you you spent several days with him. Yeah, I was preaching to her and, and the entourage, just a yeah, few dozen but, people. But plus, the, the, I think Queen Victoria had given money to, to, to the Church of Scotland to build a church Crathy Kirk, but it's just outside the gates of Balmoral Castle. And so they went to, I mean, people probably understand that though she was the supreme governor of the Church of England, she was she was Elizabeth worshipper in the Church of Scotland. She had no uh, position of any kind, except she had an oath that she would uphold the reform religion. So they essentially joined the local church there. And one of the senior members of the royal family, who will be nameless, uh, said to me, especially when they were children, how much they looked forward to that. Because they were kind of surrounded by high church. Yeah. Anglicanism most of the time. And, and kind of Anglican homilies could vary a great deal. So, so um, you know, if you watch one of these BBC period dramas of um, the big house with the servants from downstairs yeah. and the way the, the people who mattered lived within that context, almost as though those people didn't exist, in a way it was a bit like, it was a bit like having a walk-on part in a, to me in a soap opera because, you know, this had been part of my life um, you know, I don't, I don't remember her father. So as a very small boy, I was five when I was four when she became queen. Yeah. So she had been like so many people of my generation, a, a, a fixture, absolute fixture, like your grandmother. Yeah. And she had been a tremendously constant figure. So. In between, and if, if people watched on television, um, they, they, they drove our remains right through the bulk of Scotland, actually. Um, lots of people came out. And lots of, yeah. And I, so that, you know, I, I've been stimulated in the last few weeks to recollect those few days, which you know, kind of are big in my memory because it was such a unique experience meeting them all. And and in a sense, like, you know, I, I ended up the weekend and the, the last night sitting, having sitting on a couch just chatting to a small number of the absolute close family. And she liked your sermon? Well, you know, I was <laughs> actually still to Steve Lawson this morning. Um, at the end of the weekend... She found me, I, I can see it, but I can't kind of see the whole picture. She found me kind of virtually when I was on my own. I'd maybe stopped talking to somebody. And she came over 
on the last night and said, we want you down for breakfast in the morning. Well, I was thought breakfast went up to the Queen in the morning, and yeah, she said, but I did want to thank you for your sermon. And I didn't really think about it at the time, but as I remember it, very clear memory, that was a very, it was a discreet thank you. But she had no need to yeah, she didn't, and it was very, very, There was no glitterati. No, it was very communicative of she really was thanking me. And I had this kind of funny thought, you know, the number of people I, I've known who have never thanked me for a sermon. <laughs> and the queen and, and the queen did. So, um, and by some twist of law, she died a Presbyterian because she died in, in Scotland. In Scotland? That's yeah. so, some, some rule of the realm. Yeah, that's, you know, Gnostic in fashion, but she <laughs> did. And um, the thing that really, I mean, several things struck me. One was the, the weight of appreciation from so many people. Yeah. And from people who would not be particularly royalist. I mean, some people were just royalists. Um, but, you know, that she had been a real, you know, through all the changing scenes of life, she had been a constant. And also the thing that really impressed and really moved me was how, how wonderfully Christian the funeral. It was, it was as Christian a funeral ceremony as one could possibly afford for that occasion, yeah. of that occasion. And her fingerprints were obviously all over it. We'll see what the, if the coronation and, can match that. Or well, you know, I think that's been a big question. People, you know, it's not, I haven't heard it asked in the last few weeks, but, you know, for a number of years, I think it's been one of the questions discerning people have had. Will the coronation service be a Christian service? Now, whatever people think about coronations and all the rest of it, um, I think the fact is the Queen, one of the things that struck me was if I sat next to anybody and she thought she was the queen, I'd be phoning for a psychiatrist to come. Yeah. But speaking to her, which I did on a number of occasions at length, I thought, this woman believes she is the queen. And she actually is the queen. But it's not a matter of divine right of kings and queens. I think actually it was a sense of vocation in her. Yeah. Um, which now... You know, as I look back on the memories, I just find very impressive and encouraging. Um, so, uh, I mean, that's it's, it's kind of unexpected privilege, but the the good memories uh, of it have been much in my mind last week. Well, Sinclair, you have been very generous to give more than an hour. I would love to keep going, but thank you well, for for your books. Thank you for your preaching. Thank you for your friendship, being kind to me over the years. I've often told this story, you probably don't even remember. I think we were at a, a Sovereign Grace conference in Orlando, and you had thought, you had in your mind it was a pastor's conference or something, but it was for young people. I don't know, you were doing the Trinity, and it was just a, a masterful doctrinal exposition of the Trinity, and I've often told this story we walked out, and I was thanking you, and you said, oh, Kevin, that was a dog's breakfast. And it's been a great encouragement to me, because I thought, if Sinclair thought that about his sermon, I often think that about mine. There's hope for all of us if even Dr. Ferguson's message on the Trinity felt to him like a dog's breakfast. I thought, your dog eats well. So, 
Well, thank you for your friendship. It means a lot to me, Kevin. That's very true. Uh, thank you for listening and joining us on Life Books and Everything. Until next time, glorify God, enjoy Him forever, and read the book.